Open your Bibles to James chapter 4 as we come back to a passage which we've said so many times is all too familiar to us, if not by its content, by the experience it describes. The uh, shake up and the break up that comes to us in, uh, in various kinds of conflicts that enter into our lives. We all know the pain of that kind of breakup and the challenge it brings into our life. But we also know the challenges of the makeup. We understand that when the, sometimes the, uh, the issues fade in the distance and the tempers die down just a little bit, we understand that many times there are attempts to apologize or to sort of make amends or come back together or whatever it might be. Someone has hurt you, someone has injured you, someone has attacked you. And they come back wanting to say that they're sorry. And there is that inevitable sort of wrestling in our hearts and minds about whether or not this is real. Is it something that's true? Is it something that's sincere? Do they really mean what they say? Do they really understand what they've done? How can we really know if this is genuine or just some other ploy of manipulation? We're told in Scripture that real repentance is always accompanied by genuine sorrow. Genuine sorrow. Sorrow toward God, a desire to turn from sin, to completely restore what is broken, to restore broken relationships, more importantly, to restore trust that has been broken. Paul speaks about genuine repentance in 2 Corinthians 7. In verse 10, he he describes it as a contrast between Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas the sorrow of the world produces death. So he talks about a kind of godly sorrow that is genuine sorrow. It's a a sorrow that leads to an adequate kind of restoration that doesn't have the lingering regrets and doubts and and, and questions that are out there. Worldly sorrow is driven by the same kind of selfishness that led to the brokenness to begin with. It is aimed at self. It is focused on self. Maximum comfort to self. Restoration that is all about self. But godly sorrow lays aside all of that defensiveness all of the victimization mentality, all of the self-justification, all of the self-defense, all of the self-vindication, all of those things. And it leads to genuine transformation, genuine repentance, genuine restoration without regrets, it says. That kind of sorrow that is real, that comes from honest recognition of sin and produces real change, of course, is difficult. It is crushing for the person, hopefully, who has embraced it, but it's also restorative. It's also the very thing which leads to healing. Now, we could, we could understand repentance by opening up 2 Corinthians and And reading what Paul has to say there, he gives a whole list of attitudes that demonstrate that kind of genuine repentance in terms of its zeal to make things right and to do things right. But we have in front of us this morning in James chapter 4, perhaps one of the texts which give us as much insight into repentance as any other, including 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in terms of clarifying for us exactly what repentance looks like. James is talking about repentance, and particularly repentance framed in the context of this whole issue of speech and tongue and quarreling and fighting. And he wants them to understand, as 
as he goes through this section, he wants them, he wants us to understand, particularly regarding this issue of how we use our tongue and our speech to attack one another, to destroy one another. He wants to cover this, this issue of what repentance would look like. If you've heard his message, if you understand what's wrong, if you tried to deal with it, then how would you know if you've really dealt with it? Well, James goes to answer that here, and, and we need only quickly to remind ourselves how we got to this place. As James started all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1, talking about how dangerous the tongue is, how with one little spark, one little word, a whole forest is set on fire, how one little spat, one little attack sort of uh, destroys whole communities and whole relationships. He moves on to talk about how this comes from a wisdom that's not from above. It's a wisdom that's from the earth that is filled with jealousy and envy and spite. And in chapter 4, he takes up specifically this issue of quarreling and fighting, which he says arises ultimately out of selfish agendas, selfish desires that are at the heart of all of this. You could say it arises out of discontentment or dissatisfaction with not getting your way, not getting what you want. James says it this way, you desire and do not have, so you fight. You're discontent, you're not getting what you want, so you fight. You fight other people, and eventually you fight with God. You're more and more dissatisfied when you don't get your want, so you try to extract it from people when they don't give it to you. You attack them. You pray, and God doesn't answer you the way you want. And so you eventually become dissatisfied with God and you slowly drift toward a friendship with the world. And James says that kind of friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so your dissatisfaction makes you eventually bitter against Him so that pretty soon you're fighting not only with other people, you're fighting with God. You're a friend of the world, James says in verse 4, and an enemy of God. Now, he's described that whole process and how it unfolds. It's sort of anatomy, if you will, of a conflict. But then, in verse 6, he gives us a very simple escape from that. A very simple solution. And it's simply this. Submit to God. Or humble yourself before God. He calls, he, in verse 6, he quotes from Proverbs 3.34, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So his solution in the midst of all of this is very straightforward. It's a pathway of humility and a pathway of submission. Submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to the position that He has you in. Submit yourself to the job He's given to you. Submit yourself to the, to the marriage He's given to you, to the children He's given to you, to the challenge He's given to you. Submit yourself to the pathway He's called you on, the righteous behavior He's ordained, the wisdom that He gives. Submit yourself to God. James even tells us in verse 6, God opposes the proud. So lay aside your pride. Lay aside your selfish goals. Lay aside all of that stuff and submit yourself, humble yourself before Him. Now that's the context. It's clear. This is about humility and it's about submission. He says that in verse 6. He mentions it again there in verse 7 and all the way down even in verse 10. He brings it up again. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He will exalt you. So this is really humility and submission. But really it's about repentance. James is using the language of humility and submission. But what he's talking about is repentance. Although he never uses the word repentance, the word metanoia, which basically means a changing of your attitude towards sin, he never uses that specific word. 
But all throughout the context, he talks about a reversal, a reversal of your attitude towards sin, a reversal of your pathway to sin, a reversal of your life going from pride to humility, from obstinance to submission, going from selfishness to to uh, uh, willingness before God, all of that. James, he never uses the word repent, but throughout this entire passage, it's all about reversing. On one hand, submitting to God. On the other hand, resisting the devil. On one hand, drawing near to God. On the other hand, him drawing near to you. It's about sinners cleansing their hands. It's about double-minded people purifying their hearts. It's about turning superficial joy and laughter into godly sorrow. It's about not exalting yourself, but instead letting God exalt you. And particularly, it's about not condemning your brother, but withholding your condemnation and waiting on God to deal with them as He sees fit. It's all about reversal. Just listen to it as I... As I read the text, and you can hear this theme of reversal that runs all the way through. In verse 7, building on that verse 6, that quotation from Proverbs 3.34, in verse 7, James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one, one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who who are you to judge your neighbor? So the word repentance is found nowhere in there, but the idea of reversal runs all the way through this. James is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to repent, to lay aside your pride and to humble yourself before God, to stop your selfish agenda and submit yourself to Him. He's describing what we would call godly sorrow, godly repentance, which at its heart is a renunciation of your selfish agenda, your selfish desire, your worldly values, a renunciation of yourself and a reliance on God. Now all of this, as I said, comes in this language of submission. Uh, It comes in the language of reversal. It begins with, we might say, certain attitudes of reversal and then certain actions of reversal. Or we could even say attitudes of repentance and actions of repentance. And in this context specifically, he's thinking about speech. So we might even call it the attitudes of repentant speech and the actions of repentant speech. When a person submits himself to God, specifically in this area of their speech, it manifests certain attitudes and certain actions. To begin with, we can take note of these attitudes. The attitudes of repentant speech. He lists them for us in verses 7 through 10. And you can see very clearly the catalog, a whole list of sharp, short imperatives, each one of them contributing a clearer and clearer understanding of what repentance ought to look like. And the key attitude in it all, as I've already said, is submission. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. If God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, if He shows favor to the humble, if He shows His undeserved kindness to the humble, and if you want to be a recipient of that kindness in your situation, if you want to be a recipient of God's favor in your situation, if you want to have God at work in your situation, then you need to humble yourself and you need to begin that humility with submission. Submit yourself to God. 
Submit yourself to, uh, to, to God. Lay aside your pride and yield to Him. Now, you might ask yourself, what am I submitting to exactly? I mean, I understand I have to submit myself, but what exactly does God want me to do? I mean, just tell me. Give me the three things, the four things. Just point them out to me. What exactly do I need to submit to? Well, the answer is anything. Everything. Anything God wants to send your way, everything God has ordained for you, all of the pain and all of the trial and all of the humiliation and everything, you need to submit to all of it. If you want to be a recipient of God's grace, if you want God to work in your heart with grace to the humble, you need to be praying as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will be done, but your will, O God. Whatever it is, you submit. The word submission is just simply a word for aligning yourself under or placing yourself under. And so it refers to you taking your proper place under the sovereign rule and lordship of of Christ in your life and in the universe. It's recognition that He is in control And that you can trust Him with that control. And James, of course, talking here, even in this context of conflict and quarreling, you've gotten yourself into a situation where you have conflict, where you have broken relationships, and and you don't know what to do. You wanted something, you didn't get it. James 4.2 talks about this. You fight and quarrel because you... You, you want and don't get it, or you, you, you ask and didn't receive from God, or you ask and didn't receive it because you wanted to spend it on your own passion. So whatever it is, you're not getting what you want in the situation. You would construct it differently. You would define it differently. You would have it differently. You're not getting your way, your wants, whatever it is, and your dissatisfaction has set you at odds with other people. And whether you realize it or not, It is creating dissatisfaction and enmity toward God. So James' answer is easy. Submit. Submit. Submit to whatever God has given you. Submit to whatever God has not given you. This is the first attitude. The attitude of acceptance of God's sovereignty over your situation. Now, along with that, secondly, he says you have to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is the second half of verse 7. And and this kind of completes the picture of submission. You can't just say that Jesus is your Lord, that you're a Christian, that you follow him, that you submit to him until you are also resisting the devil. Because Satan is all about rebellion against God. He's all about being contrary to God's ways, we have to resist that. We have to resist Satan and he will flee from us. Now, Peter says something very similar. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over the very next book in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. And you can see in verse 8, Peter says something very similar. And interestingly, there are a number of elements that are in common between these two chapters that I think give us tremendous insight into resisting the devil or fighting the devil. You can take note, first of all, in verse 5, that James, excuse me, Peter, quotes the very same verse that, that James quotes, Proverbs 3.34. He says in that verse, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the first thing that these two passages have in common is that both of them are framing their discussion in light of Proverbs 3.34. Both of them are, 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 are speaking out of that context. Secondly, you'll notice in verse 6, "...humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God..." 
so that he may pro- at the proper time he may exalt you. So the second thing these two passages have in common is this paradox of humbling yourself before God and trusting him to exalt you. In other words, this resistance toward the devil is framed within the discussion of pride and humility. Pride and humility, resistance of the devil, in other words, is probably resistance of pride. And it's humbling yourself before God. As Peter quotes this, he goes on and tells his readers to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, which for Peter in the next verse he defines with a participle. Casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is what humility looks like. This is what humbling yourself before God looks like in Peter's definition. It is believing that God cares for you. It is believing that God controls your circumstances And that you can trust Him with your circumstances. You can cast all of your anxiety on Him, believing that He cares for you. And of course, the third element that these passages have in common is that both of them speak about resisting the devil. Both of them, in some sense, frame the discussion in the midst of anxiety over your needs and your wants. James talks about you wanting and not having. Peter talks about casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then, as Peter says in verse 8, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm. In the faith. Resist him. So we have a responsibility to resist the devil. He is prowling around, we're told. He's not omnipresent. Satan doesn't exist everywhere. He comes and goes. He's not like God. He's not everywhere. He may have wandered into your arena. And if he has and tempted you with pride, you are to stand firm against Him. How? In faith. You are to stand firm against Him, believing. Stand firm against Him, believing that God cares and you can cast your care on Him. If you stand firm against Him, He will flee, we're told. Resist Him. Humble yourself before God. Cast your cares and anxieties on Him. Believe that He gives more grace. Trust that He will exalt you in due time. Lay aside His pride. You know, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, not to install as an elder... A young man, a novice, because he says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, that he, he may become conceited or puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is the devil's work. This is the devil's work. His work is to make you proud His work is to cause you to stumble with pride. His work is to get you not to humble yourself under God. His work is to get you to be dissatisfied, discontent, grumbling, complaining, attacking, at enmity with people around you and with God. That is His work. His work is to make you proud, to make you resistant. To take control of your life by pride. And you, Peter says, and James says, you have to resist him. You do that, and eventually he'll flee. Eventually he'll flee. 
Thirdly, James goes on with another attitude of repentance. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Now, he's not speaking here spatially. He's not saying that you have to find, go find God somewhere out there and get close to Him. He's talking relationally. God isn't far off. He's everywhere. Unlike the devil who has to prowl around, God is always present. He's always there. He's omnipresent, always at hand. But, of course, it can seem like God is far away. It can seem like He's far off when you're in the midst of your your dark uh, days and your dark troubles, when you're asking and not receiving, when it doesn't seem like God is answering your prayers, it seems like God is far off. But James calls us to humble ourselves, which involves drawing near to God, which by, by which James means relationally, or we might even say perceptually. You need to perceptually draw near to God. You need to remember, in other words, that God is near. Draw near to God in the sense of putting your trust in Him, humbly submitting to Him, trusting that He can care for your situation. You remember, we looked at this last week, Philippians chapter 4, when Paul was counseling to ladies in the church who were at odds with one another and his counsel to them is very clear. They need on one hand to be anxious for nothing and on the other hand they need to remember that God is near. The Lord is near. Drawing near to God is humbly recognizing and remembering that He's aware of your needs that He's mindful of your plight and that He's capable of doing something about it. It is, we might say, reframing the picture of your life and your situation so that God is no longer one tiny element in your frame. God is the frame. He isn't just some shrub on the landscape. He is the landscape. Drawing near to God is remembering God's ultimate sovereignty. It is, is drawing near to the idea that He realizes what your needs are and He cares for you. And while He may feel at times distant and barely involved, when you draw near, you recognize or remember the nearness of God, you begin to see that God is intricately involved with your situation and working all things together for your good. So the attitude of repentance begins with this humility. It begins with a submission to God. It involves resisting the pride of the devil that he wants to lure you into the self-sufficiency, it involves drawing near to God by remembering and recognizing His intimate involvement with your needs. And then fourthly, it involves purifying your hearts. James 4.8, he calls us to draw near to God, but also to cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a couplet, it's a parallelism. It's a, two phrases that basically have the same meaning behind them. He calls us sinners or double-minded, calling us to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Now, of course, throughout this passage, all the way through, James has been referring to his readers as brothers. In fact, even down in verse 11, he will again call them brothers. So when he uses the word sinners here or double-minded, what he's really doing is he's amping up the rhetoric. He's using the language of the Old Testament prophets to capture our attention as he refers to his readers now as sinners, very similar to the way he uses sinner at the end of this book. In verse 19, my brothers, if any among of, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering 
will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So these are people who are in the church, they're in the truth, and they temporarily wander away and you bring them back. And James says, when you bring back that kind of a sinner, then you are restoring them to health and life and truth. But here he calls us these sinners. If you are one who has resisted submitting to God, if you are one who is demanding in your own dissatisfaction, your own ways and your own agenda, you are a sinner or you are, as he says, double-minded, which he already used one time back in chapter 1 when he talks about the doubtful person. The doubtful person, one who is in the midst of a trial, who asks God for wisdom, but he doubts. And he tells us, don't expect that if you are one of these doubtful people, that you're going to receive anything from God, because you are unstable in all your ways. You're tossed about by winds and waves, by your own pride. You're double-minded. You've allowed yourself to be driven by your friendship with the world and its ways. You allowed yourself to be overtaken by the pride of the devil and you're behaving like a sinner. And James calls you to cleanse your hands and purify your heart. Get rid of of all the polluting influences. Remove all of the contaminations. Purify yourself again. Cleansing your hands, by the way, that's Old Testament language, ceremonial language. It's not about hygiene in the sense that we think of hygiene, washing your hands before a meal to get rid of maybe the the bacteria or the germs there. Jews were generally not concerned about microscopic organisms. When they referred to washing hands, it was symbolic and ceremonial. The priest, Exodus 30, 19, tells us, before he ever went into the temple before God, he was to wash his hands. He would go through a cleansing process particularly focused on his hands. Why, you might ask, why his hands? Because the hands were the symbol of usefulness and activity. They symbolized, we might say, what his attention was focused on. As he moved into the temple, everything he's doing now was primarily with his hands. Everything he was doing was focused on God. And so cleansing your hands represented a cleaned and dedicated life. You wash, if you will, you wash off all of the old stuff that you touched and your hands are now dedicated to God alone. This is the language that James uses. You cleanse yourself from all of those duplicitous and double-minded ways and you dedicate your heart and your mind to God alone. It's a reversal, a reversal. Humble yourself before Him, you submit yourself to Him, you resist the pride of the devil, you dedicate yourself to God by cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts, getting rid of all that contaminated thought life, the wisdom of the world that has crept in, the lack of trust in God, the lack of submission to Him. And then fifth, James says in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's like Jesus in Luke chapter 6 when Jesus says, let your laughter be turned to weep. Blessed is one, he says, whose laughter is turned to weeping. This is what he's talking about. He's He's mounting up the language here with this heightened rhetorical effect and all these words, borrowing a lot from the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 15, verse 2, Moab goes up to the high places of Dibon and weeps over Nebo and over Mediba, Moab wails. Jeremiah 9, I will take up weeping and wailing 
and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they're laid waste. Lamentations 5.15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. Amos 8.10, I'll turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. This is the language of the prophets when they were calling Israel to a place of repentance. And so what James is doing is the same thing they were doing, is basically calling on them who have ignored their miserable state for so long. He's calling on them to acknowledge it, to recognize it. You've been walking around in obstinate pride. It's time for you to recognize your wretchedness, recognize your rebellion, and weep for it. It's time for you to turn your superficial laughter, your joy over the ways of the world and all of your fascination with your idols, your dreams, your coveting, all of the, all the superficial joy that you try to hold to in your heart for that. It's time that you turn all of that stuff into the weeping of repentance. Now, this isn't to say that God has called us to a permanent posture of mourning. The Christian life is not all gloom and tears. You recognize, if you have come to know God... This irony that in sin there's pleasure for a moment, but sorrow remains. But in repentance, there's sorrow for a moment, but joy that remains. He's calling them here to restoration. He's calling them here to true joy. This is why a wise man welcomes a rebuke. This is why a wise man loves those who reprove him. Proverbs 15:12 A scoffer doesn't love the one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. But Proverbs 9:8 Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Proverbs 15:31 He whose ear listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise, but he who neglects discipline despises himself. He who listens to reproof acquires understanding. This is why a wise man accepts and welcomes this kind of grief and mourning. He welcomes a reproof because he understands it leads to joy. It leads to health. It leads to restoration. It brings about healing. A happiness that doesn't die away. It's a happiness that comes from having your life restored to a right place with God. It's a happiness from moving from a place where you have been at enmity with God. You've been double-minded. You've resisted His way. You've not sought His face. You've bowed up in pride. You've not wanted to submit and yield. You've not humbled yourself under His mighty hand. And what you need to do is you need to weep and you need to mourn for all of that pride and allow God to restore and cleanse you. And joy will come. That's where James goes in verse 10. He circles all the way back to this attitude of humility. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Before the Lord. And He'll exalt you. You don't need to exalt you. You don't need to promote you. You don't need to focus on you. You don't need to cling to whatever it is you want. Whatever it is you crave. You just need to humble yourself before the Lord. Submitting to His will for your life. And as Peter says... You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time, He will exalt you. Listen, God's not asking you to do anything He hasn't done. He's not asking you to do anything He hasn't done. 
Philippians 2.8, he emptied himself. And being found in a mere human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Listen to that. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. You say, well, that was not a big deal, right? I mean, that's not such a big thing because he knew what was waiting him on the other side of the cross. He knew that he was going to be exalted. But that is the point. That is the point. You are being called to humble yourself before God, trusting that He will also exalt you. You have the same assurances that Christ had. He will exalt you. He will take care of you. He will fill your life with richness and joy and fullness. You can be sure that He will exalt you. He's given you that promise. So repentance is surrendering. Repentance is humbling. It isn't just saying I'm sorry and trying to skirt responsibility. It isn't just kind of continuing to protect your reputation. It is humbling yourself, submitting yourself to God, drawing near to God, resisting the pride of the devil, purifying your heart of all of its double-mindedness, mourning over your rebellious pride, and trusting that God will take care of you. Those are the attitudes. Now, if you have those attitudes in your heart, how does it affect your speech? How does it practically affect your speech? Well, James doesn't leave us wondering because in verses 11 and 12, he immediately moves from these repentant attitudes of our speech to the repentant actions of our speech. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So, so we don't need to spend a lot of time here because we understand now these inner attitudes. These are just now what, what he's describing in verses 11 and 12 is just the outward manifestation of laying aside that pride and the outward manifestation of humbling yourself under God. So this is what humility and repentance looks like. You refrain from speaking evil against one another. You refrain from judging your brothers and sisters. Now, you might be thinking immediately, wait, wait, are, are, are you saying that I have to lay aside all evaluation? Is this suggesting that, that I cannot make evaluating judgments about the rightness or the wrongness of someone's life? I mean, does this even rule out the possibility of, of talking to my brother or sister about their sin? No, that's not what James is talking about. He's not talking about dealing with the sins of others. In fact, as we already saw later on at the very end of this letter, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, he'll actually commend you to go after sinners who are straying away from the body of Christ and gone out from among us. What James is talking about here is a kind of jealousy of spirit that is focused on its own way and its own things. It's the whole idea with which he began the chapter And when he uses the word judge here, he specifically has that selfish ambition, that selfish idea that condemns, or you might even say, seeks to destroy others as your enemy. Do not seek to destroy your brother or sister, to tear them down with your gossip and your slander or whatever. Don't destroy them. That is not your place. Now, the clue to understand all of this is in verse 12 by just simply taking note of the contrast. We're not supposed to do this, but James says in verse 12, 
there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, now you can just sort of file this away, but one of the keys for interpreting a word in the Scripture, if you really wanted to kind of have a richer understanding of a word, just pay attention in the context to what it is contrasted with. The, 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 the near context always unfolds the meaning. And one of the things that James is contrasting this with is this judging of your neighbor is contrasted with God who has the rightful role to determine whether or not to destroy them. That's what he says. God has the right. He is the one who is able on one hand to save, but on the other hand to destroy. So when James is talking about judging, what he's talking about here is destructive speech, disparaging speech, all of the critical and harsh and hurtful speech that is intended to do harm to someone's reputation, to their happiness, to their emotional state or whatever. And his basic point is this, that that kind of destruction belongs to God. It's not your place. It's not your role. You may believe that it's your your role, but that is just your pride. That is just your pride. In fact, James says, when you level that kind of destructive criticism against your brother or sister, he says in verse 11, you are speaking against the law and judging the law. And if you are a judge of the law, you're no longer a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, again, we don't have to spend a lot of time here because we've already dealt with this somewhat back in chapter 2. When James uses the word law, what he's really talking about, what he's really focused on is the royal law or the chief law, as we might call it. He's talking about the law that sums up all other laws. The law which says, on one hand, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the law which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the point of all of the laws. All of the Old Testament is summed up in that. And so, when James refers to the law, this is what he's talking about. And when you take aim at your brother or sister with destructive criticism and destructive words, you are abusing the law. You are speaking evil against the law. You are not being a doer of the law. You're actually judging, or as we said, you're destroying the law. You're undermining it, and you're no longer submitting to it. In fact, the sad irony is that the moment you open your mouth with this kind of destructive criticism to criticize others, you yourself are a violator of the law, and so you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You're no longer placing yourself under the law. You're no longer a doer of the law. You are a judge. In other words, you are trying to place yourself in the place of God. It's the opposite of humbling yourself. It's the opposite of submitting yourself. It's the opposite of resisting the devil. You have allowed him to take control of you by pride And you have usurped God. So the simple reality is your actions will follow your attitudes, the attitudes of verses 7 through 10, if you're truly repentant. And instead of constructive, excuse me, instead of destructive criticism, you will yield to God as the ultimate judge. In the words of Romans 12, do not be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary then, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. This is the makeup. If you've been a part of the breakup and you want to know how to get to the makeup, this is the makeup. This is what repentance looks like. Repentance for you is to lay aside pride. Resist the devil's influence in your life. It doesn't look like what you think. It doesn't come to you with pitchfork and fangs. It comes to you with a subtle siren call of worldly wisdom. It tells you that you don't need to wait for God. You don't need to trust God. You don't need to allow God to work all these things out. You don't need to do all that. You need to take matters into your own hands. You haven't gotten your way. You need to make it your way. God hasn't given you what you want. You need to take control. You need to be dissatisfied. You need to be discontent. And you need to attack. You resist that. You weep for your pride. You confess your sins and cleanse your heart and mind of all that worldliness. And you yield yourself to God. You draw near. And this God who seems so distant from all your troubles, suddenly you realize He is all around them. He has enveloped them and He is working all of it together for your good. He can take care of whoever it is who has attacked you. He can take care of whoever it is that has slandered you. He has taken care of many before that and He will take care of many after that. He can take care of it. You just submit to Him. Humble yourself to Him and He'll exalt you in due time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for our time together, thankful for this word, thankful for how you deal graciously with us. You do give grace to the humble. Let us humble ourselves before you. Your ways, O Lord, are always right. They're always true. Your judgments are always perfect. And so we'll leave them into your hands for the sake of your name and glory. We pray. Amen.